Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 18 through 34, on the screen and in your bulletin. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but there's no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Some of you are familiar with an Oxford professor named John Lennox. He's actually a mathematician. Um, and is in retirement now, but he spent the last few decades challenging the idea, really in the public sphere, challenging the idea that science and faith are at odds with one another or have to be at odds with one another. For example, he'd say, uh, the scriptures are not written to answer modern scientific questions. That does not mean that the scriptures are anti-science. And to flip that around, uh, there are questions that modern science cannot answer. It's not in the scope of science to answer certain faith questions. And one of his popular examples is uh, uh, his aunt baking a cake. He's got an Aunt Matilda. And he says, let's say my Aunt Matilda bakes a cake. 
and I bring all my scientist friends over. He's got a lot of them. Let's say we bring a chemist over, and uh, the chemist studies all the ingredients that goes into the cake and can uh, anticipate chemical reactions. And we'll bring over a physicist and you know, look at the properties of you know, how it responds to you know, heat and all this. And, and, and all of my scientist friends can come and ask all of their data questions about what went into the cake and what exactly makes it rise and this and that and the other thing. But you know what? None of my scientist friends can bring, uh, at least related to their science questions, their data questions, their what questions, let's say. None of those data questions can answer this question. Why did she break, bake the cake? What, what purpose, for what purpose does the cake exist? She made it for my Uncle Frank. Scientists aren't going to figure that out. It's not in the scope of science to figure that out. Today, we're looking at the big why question of all things, of your life and of all things. I'm talking about the universe, the cosmos, and all of the fascinating and incredibly important data questions of what we see and what we observe and what we can measure, incredibly important things, cannot possibly answer why it is here. And in light of that answer to that question, why it is here, how we should act in relation to all the stuff that we see around us, how we should interact with one another, how we should treat our own bodies. This is the passage from Jesus that answers the question, why are all things the way they are? Why are we here? How do we respond to it all? These meaning of life questions. And I'll give you Jesus' answers in shorthand. Everything exists for knowing and for loving God. That's why everything that has ever been exists for knowing and loving God. These are the two points at the heart of this passage and at the heart of your purpose and mine. Jesus says you can take all the other data points in Scripture and in the world, all the other data points in the universe, and bring them up against these two things, knowing and loving God. Okay, so all that's up in the air. Those are big, universal, what does it all mean questions. Let's bring it right down to earth to look at how this passage begins. This passage begins with a really obnoxious question from a really troubled, upset group of people who are putting Jesus to the test to get him in trouble. And they're called the Sadducees. Verse 18, and I'll remind you, uh, you're going to want to refer back to this and it's not going to be up on the screen anymore. This is page three of your bulletin, which hopefully you're able to get in, get on the way in. There are some more on the table right outside this room if you, if you, if you need one. This party of the Sadducees, this is a party of uh, the ancient Jews. In fact, the high priest at the time who will preside religiously over the execution of Jesus. You know, the secular authorities are the ones that actually carry it out. But the religious authorities that ultimately prosecute Jesus or bring him before the civil authorities are Sadducees. So 
This is the last week of Jesus' life. This is all going somewhere, somewhere very painful. They come to Jesus with a question. They say, uh, they bring him this, this question from the law of Moses. I think the first five books of our Bibles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There is a law in the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth of those five books, called the law of leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. And it's basically a law that said if, if a husband dies before uh, producing an heir, before you know, bringing a child into his marital union, then the brother of that husband needs to marry the wife. It's a very strange law to us, but it served two really important purposes in Israel. First, it was a kind of social security. So let's say you were a widow back then. Uh, that puts you in a vulnerable place in that world. And so what it does is it would secure her in a family. So it's like a social security in the ancient world. But secondly, it helps propagate a family, propagates a line, so that that family name doesn't end. But for some reason, with these Sadducees, these people who are very upset with Jesus, this idea really made it difficult for them to believe in the resurrection. Now stay with me here. The passage says as much, but it's a little strange to you and I, I think. Um, in, in the Jewish faith and in the Christian faith, what happens when a man and woman come together in marriage is that spiritually, um, the scriptures say, and it's repeated by both Jesus and Paul, the two become one. There's a real spiritual unity, a true unity that happens. But what happens if there are some tragic deaths in the world, which there are, and there's remarriages that happen? Well, if everybody rises from the dead, then in, in the new creation, who, who goes together? So it's not necessarily crazy if you think about it from that perspective. Here's how Jesus responds. In verse 25, Jesus says, in the resurrection, marriage just doesn't work that way. You know, it doesn't work the way that it does here in a place where new people are being born and um, you're protecting each other and loving each other in a way that is supposed to point to the love of Jesus. Well, the love of Jesus is everything in the resurrection, so marriage just doesn't quite work the same way. Secondly, on the general point of the resurrection, in verse 26, he says, I don't know what you know about the scriptures, Sadducees. I know you have every word of, of the law of Moses memorized, and they did, every word. But somehow it's escaped you that when God says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, when God establishes a covenant with people, Death is not the final word for them. It never has been, and it never will be. And he also summarizes this whole weird-to-us conversation in verse 24. Look back at it. He says this actually first, but it's the summary statement that he gives before he directly answers their questions. In verse 24, Jesus says, Is not this the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus is saying, and this is actually really important, to people who have memorized every word of Scripture, you don't know anything about the Scriptures. This isn't the first place Jesus says stuff like this, but it, it's still kind of shocking, isn't it? You don't know him at all. You don't know the scriptures, nor the power of God, though you've memorized his words. I, I think we talk about this pretty often. The idea of 
knowing about somebody, like knowing like facts about them versus being in a relationship with them. And this is what Jesus means. Um, in every generation, we bring a lot of our riddles to Scripture. And that's what this is. This isn't really a well-meant question. This is more of a patronizing riddle to trick Jesus. We do this in a way, politically, for sure, politically. In America, we're Democrat or Republican. I mean, at least up until the most recent election, um, you want both sides to believe that you at least sort of believe in God. And God's called down on both sides of many Many positions, politically, ethically, philosophically. And what Jesus really wants to know, however you use or misuse scripture, is do you know anything about the God of the scriptures? Think about it this way. Um, if you go in a job interview, there are a lot of questions. Tell me about your last job. Why did you leave this job? Did you get fired? Did you quit? Why'd you quit? Did you ever have any... any uh, conflicts that you had to work out. What was that like? What would you have done different? How do you feel about working in a team? Give me one example of how you challenged an authority you disagreed with. You've been to job interviews, most of you had. This is, this is how it goes. You can answer all those questions and still an employer feels like they're rolling the dice after the interview. Why? Because interviews are great, but you really know what it's like like a week, a month, a year into hiring somebody. When you really on the ground are living with them day in, day out, you know them. And same thing with you and your boss. And, and, and same thing with a church, by the way. Some of you who might be visiting here or have visited here in the past and maybe gotten more involved, you can look at stuff on the church's website. You can look at denominational affiliations. Like, what, is, what are they putting forward that they think is most important to know? What do these people look like? What do they act like? Maybe we watch some stuff that they're doing online. And that's helpful data points insofar as it goes. But you have no idea, what's this person going to do when I say really unpopular, when I, when I make known really, really unpopular doubts that I'm having? What happens when I really obviously screw up and I say and do things that are wrong? How's that going to come back to me? Do these people pray? Not judgmental, but is there a life outside of the data points? Is there a heartbeat of the love of God that's come to them and has created something within and gone out into the world? I hope so. I have no idea compared to the church down the street. Or I sure hope so. But how do you know that? You know it in relationship. One thing that's very clear in, this, in, in these verses is that if you know God, there are a few key and obvious ways it works out in your life. Uh, most directly in these first few verses that we read today, Jesus seems to think if you know the least thing about God, you'll know something about whether or not you should fear death. He's not God of the dead. He's God of the living. If we know God, what will that do to our fears? Or, because it's a process, right? It's not a once for all. As we increasingly get to know God, what will that do to how I think about scary things that could happen to me and things that I love? Do I actually believe that whatever I face, 
I'm under the covering and sealed in a covenant with the king. And here's one that'll definitely happen if you know God. And this is what gets worked out in the very next verses. And these are the meaning of life verses. If we know God, we will love God. If we know God, we will love God. So, all that was about knowing God or not knowing him, more to the point. Let's see what Jesus says in the second half of this passage about loving God. And how it is the absolute center of everything that is. That's not an overstatement. Listen to the words. Verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in the confession text, which Jim read for us this morning, there is an additional note from Jesus that Matthew includes that Mark does not in his gospel record. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on this. Now, this is what you need to know about that. The law in Old Testament Israel, in first century Israel still, is not just a list of commandments. Torah, or law, means not just commandments. Torah means a way of being in the world. It's God's spoken and ongoing wisdom. And Jesus is saying nothing less than here. If you understand that you are here mainly to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is, with every faculty that you have, you are in harmony with all things. And the second is like it. That is, it flows from it. Loving your neighbor as yourself. This is a quote directly that they know from Deuteronomy 6. And I just want to hang out here for one second because it's easily said and it's easy to think that we get it But let's really sit with this for a moment. The number one commandment is love God. You are commanded to love God. I'll be honest. The first thing that I think of when I hear that I am commanded to love someone, I think of uh, George Orwell's book, 1984. Has anybody ever read 1984? They forced most of you to read 1984 in high school. And sooner or later, most of us are glad that they made us. So if you're not familiar with it at all, uh, the story revolves around this oppressive authority called Big Brother. It's like this, this general authority that you don't really see, but you're always aware of, that's always watching you. You can't get away. No matter what you do, Big Brother's watching. And if you, you step out of line, Big Brother's going to get you. And there's this guy at the end of the book, Big Reveal, you find out, has been working for Big Brother. His name's O'Brien. And he speaks to the protagonist at the end of the story. His name's Winston Smith. Uh, O'Brien has Winston Smith cornered at the end of the book. And he says, tell me, Winston, and you know that I'm always able to to detect a lie. Tell me, what are your true feelings about Big Brother? 
And Winston Smith says, I hate him. And O'Brien says, well, then the time has come for you to take the last step. You can't just obey Big Brother, which is what you've been doing all along. You must love Big Brother. It is not enough to obey. You must love him. I think there's two ways to receive the great and most important commandment of Jesus. When you're commanded to love someone, this is actually the first thing I think of. I think of Winston being told, this oppressive authority that's giving you no choice in the matter is saying, love me or else. That's kind of creepy. It's kind of scary. And I've had people that I'm talking about Jesus with respond exactly in that way often. Like, what a narcissist. He creates so that we have to, no option, love him. That's one way to take it. But there's another way to take it that everyone in this room gets on a gut level. You can offer things to someone in this life, a boss, a parent, someone who's a peer or an authority in your life. You can offer something that's out of some kind of due submission to them and hate them. It's actually most of the way things work in this world. We keep going to work because we don't really want to love our boss, but we don't want to get fired. We're in relationships because we don't want to be super lonely, but we don't really love them. We might even hate them, but, you know, we don't want to be alone. You can do all kinds of things that look amazingly sacrificial, and there's not a shred of love. And all Jesus is trying to say is that should never be. That actually sets the world on Fire, if you think you're doing good, but there's hate in your heart instead of love. You know, the Apostle Paul says this in that famous chapter of love in 1 Corinthians 13. There's a shocking line in there. We read it at weddings, but we hardly even pay attention. You can give up your body to be burned. And if you don't love, you're actually setting the world on fire. You're helping no one. I mean, that's unbelievable. That's like our whole lives. Love. It's what everything's for. And it's what you want. You don't want to be catered to. You don't just want to be obeyed if you're the authority structure or even the peer. What do you want? You want to love and be loved. That's all Jesus is saying. It's what everything's for. And you can do the right thing or the obedient thing or strive in a way that you really think is helping. But there's no love, and this can never be. And it's not the way it will be in the resurrection either. Jesus adds in verse 31, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Note that this secondness of love your neighbor is an expression of the first. In, again, in other gospel uh, testimonies, the gospel writer will say, this is, this is both in Luke and Matthew, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. Jesus says the second is like it. It means it's very similar. It's not first, but he means it flows directly from it. Do you want an amazing test about your love for God? Ask how you love other people. Jesus is saying you, can't, you cannot say 
He's not condemning you for this, but he will keep being clear. You cannot say that you love God if you hate people. And I'm not just talking about the people you love most. I think it's Elder Emilianos of uh, Simona Petra in Mount Athos in Greece has said famously, if you say you love one person, but there is one other person in this world you do not love, you don't love the person you say you love. Why? Why? Because it is the very love of God that fuels us to love others. And what's his love like? It's directed towards the undeserving. It's directed towards people who don't want it, who run from it, who curse it, and it keeps coming after them. That's the love of God. Do you want to know if you've loved him back? How do you love your enemy? And this is so clear from Jesus. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. The greatest Christian virtue is love, and the greatest expression of love is love for enemies. Friends, this is, this is what it's all about. This is tapping into the motive that created all things so that this love would be shared and reciprocated back to God. The scribe says correctly at the very end of the passage, and we're closing now, these loves are much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. What does this mean? It means that when the, uh, the Israelites looked at all of their rules, all of their laws, they could perfectly offer every sacrifice for every sin they committed to make sure that they were okay, that they had checked the box with God. But they would have missed it all if there was no love for God and love for their neighbor in the midst of it. Hear me. Whatever issue we are interpreting in 2022, whatever crisis we face as a church or as a culture that drives us back to the scriptures, looking for principles to help us through, it will all depend, whatever interpretation we come to, its correctness or incorrectness, will depend on love for God and neighbor at the most basic level. If we find principles in scripture that take us away from love and God, love of God and neighbor, we will know that we've gotten it wrong. However correct other aspects of our position might be. Folks, I really think, God help me, what I've told you is true. This is, this is the part of the sermon that always is like, you're more in the ter territory of wisdom than in chapter and verse. So when I was praying for you all and for myself, one of the things that kept coming into my heart is, great, Lord Jesus, love God with everything that you have, everything, every faculty you have all the time, and your, your neighbor, your enemy, which we know our enemies are included, from the parable of the Good Samaritan and the Sermon on the Mount. Who can do this? Who can love this way? Who can ever love this way for like a day? What do I do if I just can't find this love that sent the world turning? That's the reason for my existence. What happens when I look inside myself and I don't find it? And, and this is you too. There are people that you've seen this morning and you are crippled in your heart to love them. It's like your legs don't work. 
It's like you are handicapped to walk toward them and give them a hug. What do you do if you just don't find this love within you? Well, it starts with, as Jim led us well this morning, saying, I don't love. I admit it. You win. I don't love. Not one day in my entire life have I ever loved the way that you've loved me and the way that you're calling me to love now. It's never happened. How can that be? It's the truth. That's where you start. And in the next breath, we cling to those words of assurance that Jim read this morning. Did you hear those words from 1 John 4? Let me quote verse 10 to you. The Apostle John says, In this is love, not that we have ever loved God once perfectly in our whole life. That's not your hope. In this is love, that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Folks, I want to send you out here with two pieces of good news, and if you don't hear anything else, hear this. Hear both of these things, because you need them both. First, love never starts with you. I swear this is good news. It actually can't start with you. And if you know that it doesn't start with you, if you know your lovelessness, you're at the beginning of the gospel, you're near the kingdom of God. God's love goes first. It always has. It did at the beginning. And if you're feeling any kindling, any awareness that you can't love the way he calls you to, that's the heart just beginning to break open so that his light can shine in through the cracks. That's the only way the love of God gets into your heart is by your heart breaking and admitting, I can't do this. How can that be? Lord, have mercy on me. And he will. He promises to. His love goes first. He'll forgive you. It cost him so much. It cost the life of Jesus Christ on the cross being a propitiation. That means a putting away of wrath. That means an eradication of the guilt that you carry around. That means a removal of all debt, all penalty. It's gone, though it cost him, because he loves you. It comes, and you might receive that, that's what we call getting saved or becoming justified. Paul uses that word a lot. But it doesn't stop there. You forget it. You live lovelessly again. It comes back. He will be faithful to forgive every time you fail and return to his love, which keeps coming toward you. And when that love comes to you and the heart breaks, it's miraculous every time, but it's also a promise. It creates love within you. It creates, get this, an answering love back to God. If you ever want to obey the great commandment, you need to know it's an answering love. It's not you drumming up some kind of emotional uh, experience because you're supposed to. No. You can't do even that. It's coming to a God of all power and saying, have mercy on me and finding out that he does. And then how do you want to respond? An answering love. Love doesn't start with you. Praise God, it'll never have to. 
go to him and say, I have the Sadducees problem. I know nothing of your love for me, though I've heard about it again and again, maybe. Say, thank you, God, for sending me this completely unlovable person who I can't even begin to love. They're they're like a prophet to me. They're just reminding me again how little love I have for you and them. Thank you for sending them to me. Thank you for not letting me live another day in this world under the lie that I love people because I don't. Thank you for reminding me of your great love and mercy for me, though I don't love you and others. Love doesn't start with you. It comes from him. And secondly, this is the second piece of good news. It's not your love for God that saves you. It's not your obedience to the great commandment to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. What saves you is God's love for you and sending Jesus to be the sacrifice for your sins. And that will keep saving you. It has saved you. Cling to it when you're forgetting that love and you notice your lovelessness. 1 John 4, memorize it. In this is love, not that I've loved God, but that he's loved me, us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.